Dear Father, Father, we are uh, eager to get back together. We're eager, Father, to continue in our work as a ministry and a church. Um, We still know that there will be challenges ahead. We assume, Father, many that we haven't even thought of yet because that's the world we live in. But, Father, every generation of the church, from even the very first, has faced its own share of difficulties and trials, whether that was persecution or illness, as in our case, or changing governments, changing world powers, and world wars of one kind or another, things, Father, that often have interrupted the church's ability to do what they wish to do. But, Lord, we know your uh, power to hold your church together and to minister to it and to minister to the world through it is not limited by these worldly things and that you use them to your own glory and to our benefit ultimately. So we trust that you have got a good purpose in all that we've experienced and will experience. We just want to be faithful, Father, to the calling you've put upon our hearts and that we would continue in the things you've asked us to do, trusting, Father, that you'll use our obedience to some good purpose. We just want to continue in that today as we do every week. We ask, Father, that those who are gathered wherever they are and opening their Bibles ready to study with you now, Father, that they are united together by the Spirit. Even if they can't see or hear or talk to one another, they nonetheless recognize that they are part of something larger than themselves by faith. And it will just grow their desire to see what that entity looks like gathered together again and that we would all be together in that moment when the time comes. Father, help us understand the word today as we study what happened to Peter and the disciples and what happened to our Lord. Help us to see ourselves in this moment, understand things that you have prepared for us here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you ask anyone to describe a moment from the gospel accounts, I suspect that most people would choose some scene from Christ's suffering and death on the cross. In fact, even those who've never opened a Bible, even those who aren't Christian, could probably tell you something about the way Jesus died, at least some of the details of his crucifixion. In fact, is there any human death in all of history that is better known and more remembered than Jesus' death? I mean, for example, do you know how Buddha died? Do people retell the deaths of Muhammad or Confucius or any of the countless number of Indian gurus that have come and gone? No, but everyone, including Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and most everyone else for that matter, can tell you how Jesus died on a cross. And the story of Jesus' death is so widely known and yet at the same time the purpose of his death so poorly known, that is why he died, that you understand the mission of the church. It's in the telling of this story so that we can explain the meaning of it by the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through us. So that's the purpose today as well. As we embark on this study of the final hours of Jesus' life, his sufferings to the going to the cross as he dies to save us from our sin, as we go into that study, we want to understand not only what happened, but we want to understand why it happened and what it means for us now, today, and for the world at large. And so today we begin with the first of Jesus' sufferings, which takes place in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. But interestingly, Jesus' sufferings do not begin with beatings or scourgings, and they don't come at the hands of heartless Romans or hard-hearted Jewish authorities. No, they begin with a rejection 
by his closest friends, the disciples. We begin there in Matthew 26, verse 30. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been risen, or after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, well, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, well, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. So scene that we're looking at here in verse 30, it picks up right after the Last Supper. We studied that last week in Matthew's account. You may have noticed Matthew's rendition of the Last Supper is among the shortest in the Gospels. In fact, if you want more detail, you need to go read John's Gospel because John devotes five long chapters to the conversation that took place in that upper room. And among the things that John gives us there that we don't get from Matthew is a moment in which Jesus told his disciples that he'd be leaving soon. Of course, he's referring to his death and his resurrection and ascension. Now, when he said that, Peter asked Jesus, where are you going? Because I want to go with you. And Jesus responded, well, you, you can't go right away. You'll follow me later. And what he was referring to, of course, was that ultimately these men die. And when they do, they would enter into heaven with Jesus. Naturally, when he said that to Peter, though, Peter didn't understand what he was saying. So in John 13, Peter responds at that point in the upper room that he would lay his life down for Jesus. That was mostly bravado on Peter's part, you know, pride. I think he just wanted to impress Jesus or maybe encourage Jesus by what he said. But Jesus at that time saw through it. And so in that moment, in the upper room, John tells us that Jesus told Peter then that he would deny him three times that night. Now that was the first time that Jesus told that to Peter. And here now in Matthew 26, we're reading the second time that they've had this same exchange. Jesus and the disciples have left the upper room now by the time of Matthew 26, and they are uh, in the Mount of Olives now. They came back out of the city of Jerusalem, up the Kidron Valley, and into the Mount of Olives. And as they reach a garden that was positioned somewhere on that western side of the Mount of Olives, a garden called Gethsemane, Jesus returns to the same conversation that he had just been having in the upper room. In verse 31, he says, not only will Peter fall away, but all the disciples will abandon Jesus later that night. Now, can you imagine the stunned look on the faces of those guys when they heard Jesus' prophecy? I mean, they, they couldn't have known about the violence that was about to unfold that evening. And so they certainly couldn't anticipate the fear that they all were going to know. And you know, fear can make you say and do some pretty dumb, crazy things, including even abandoning and denying the Lord himself. But for now, they're just incredulous at the suggestion that they could ever do such a thing. And to support his prediction for them, Jesus quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, verse seven. And I'll just read that verse to you from Zechariah. The prophet says, "'Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, "'and against the man, my associate,' "'declares the Lord of hosts, "'strike the shepherd.'" and the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So Jesus says that in Zechariah's prophecy, it says the shepherd will be struck down, God's associate, that's a reference to Jesus, the Messiah, 
And as that happens, his sheep, his followers, will be scattered. And as Jesus quotes from Zechariah, he says to these men, this was speaking about me, and it was speaking about you, the sheep. That Christ's abandonment by his disciples was the first of all the suffering Jesus would know on this night, on his way to the cross. He suffered witnessing his friends leaving him and denying him in times of need, just as you and I would feel the same way if somebody walked away from us under those same circumstances. Now, obviously, God does not depend on his creation for emotional support. We're not saying God needed the disciples for any reason. He's sufficient in himself, scriptures tell us. But Jesus, being man also, had emotions. He had feelings. And he was facing an unbelievably devastating experience which was made all the worse by having to do it alone. Not having the support of friends in a moment like that was not meaningless to Jesus just because he was also God. It had an impact. And the disciples, as they abandoned him to his fate, they magnified his sorrow and his disappointment even as he knew it was gonna happen. Moreover, Zechariah 13 proves to us that the disciples leaving Jesus in this time was actually a part of God's plan. You notice at the end he says, I will turn my hand against the little ones. That's God saying that he will bring about these circumstances, obviously for some good purpose is the implication. And Jesus says that after they disavow him at his death, he will meet them later in Galilee once he has been raised from the dead. Now I find that a fascinating transition. Jesus nonchalantly moves from explaining how they will abandon him to looking forward to their next meeting. I mean, clearly, Jesus is not viewing their failure to stand by him in his time of need as an end to their relationship or an end to future opportunities to minister together. He clearly sees this relationship continuing. And Jesus' statement to his men in this moment is more important than you may have considered. And it certainly deserves our attention for a moment this morning. That exchange teaches us something very important about the nature of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus' disciples are going to reject the Messiah during his greatest moment of need, and yet Jesus is not gonna reject them. This is a cornerstone of the gospel. This is a major point of theology in the Christian faith, and it is a powerful source of hope for every believer. And to understand why, we need to go just a little further in this text and focus in on one man specifically, the example given to us here in the chief apostle, Peter. Back on the Mount of Olives, Peter speaks up at this point to what Jesus has just said. And here again, for the second time now, he declares his undying support and commitment to Jesus. He says that, look, Jesus, even if all these other guys fall away, I will never fall away. And the term fall away there in Greek is scandalizo. And it literally means to stumble so as to separate from someone due to an offense. Uh, We get the English word scandalize from this same Greek word. And scandalize is someone who becomes a pariah and as a result leads others away from them, to abandon them. That's the idea of the word. So for example, if someone was to offend you with a Facebook post, let's say, and then you respond by unfriending that person, that's scandalizo. And Peter is just telling Jesus here, there is nothing that could ever offend Peter such that it would lead Peter to consider abandoning Jesus. That's what he says anyway. 
Now, I'm sure he meant it, in the moment anyway, and I'm sure he had every intention of keeping his promise here, as far as he could know, but it's the same for all of us, really. You know, when you make a promise to someone, something sincere, yeah, you fully intend to keep your word, at least as best you can, and yet many times we fall short, don't we? We break promises, and when we do, it's usually because we could not perfectly anticipate the future. We make a promise based on what we know and what we think in the moment, and then later, you know, circumstances change, things we didn't anticipate, and that will sometimes cause us to fall away from our promise, from our commitment. Now, in Peter's case, he promised that he could resist any force that might come upon him demanding him to reject Jesus. That's what he's saying. He underestimated the power of his own fear at watching Jesus being arrested and threatened with crucifixion, and he overestimated his willingness to suffer death with Jesus when that time came. You know, crucifixion is probably the the most painful way that humanity has ever devised for killing a person, and Peter just couldn't bear the thought of experiencing it. And really, who could blame him? You know, so Peter makes a promise that he couldn't have kept in the end, and Jesus knew this would happen, and so at this moment, in this exchange, Jesus gives Peter a sign to assure Peter that what he's saying will come to pass. And he uses a a colloquialism of the day. Jesus says to Peter that Jesus would be denied by Peter three times before the rooster crows, which is just a way of saying before sunrise. It was bad enough, I think, for Peter that Jesus would suggest that Peter had the potential to reject Jesus at all. I mean, that hurt. But then to say that it will happen not just once, but three times and in a matter of hours from that moment, I think that was probably more than Peter could stand. And so an indignant Peter at that point just responds defensively, maybe pridefully, and in the process, he throws his fellow disciples under the bus, and he says, look, I don't care what these other guys do. They're probably going to reject you. Yeah, but I'm never going to reject you. Clearly, he's not thinking, not at all. He's just reacting. And I think for that same reason, Jesus doesn't bother to respond to him in that moment. He just lets the comment go unaddressed because he knew soon enough Peter would see that he was right. All of this would happen. Matthew records Peter's three denials later in this chapter. We're going to get there in a little while. We're not going to do that today, and we'll study them well when we get there. But today, you need to appreciate the significance of this exchange and why it's such a powerful source of hope for every believer. And to begin, you may have heard someone in the past, someone you know in church, someone you've read maybe, or some pastor teaching, tell you that it's possible for a Christian to become unsaved. You know, some believe that a Christian who professes Christ and is saved and then later, for some reason, denies Christ will then lose their salvation. Or you might say they reject their salvation and it goes away. And they might try to support that notion using various scriptures that they think teach such a thing. And in all cases, they're simply misinterpreting or misusing those texts. In fact, if we had time today, I could walk you through every single one of those texts that are often cited to support that conclusion, and I could show you how they're all misunderstood. And if you're interested in that deeper conversation, by the way, or that deeper examination of the topic, I would encourage you to look further, and I would send you to our study on Romans as probably your best starting point on that topic. But look, even if you don't have that background, even without a deep understanding of biblical soteriology or whatever it comes with that, You can know that your relationship with Jesus does not end in such a fashion simply by looking 
at Peter. You know, and Peter, you have a case study here, a case study to understand what does the Lord do with a disciple who repudiates him publicly? Peter's denying Jesus here, and when we get to the later part of this chapter, you'll see he does it vehemently, he does it repeatedly, he does it publicly. How did Jesus respond? Did he accept Peter's resignation from the faith? Did Jesus reject Peter when Peter rejected Jesus? No. In fact, Peter's denial here of Jesus is exactly the kind of rejection that some would say results in a loss of salvation. And look, don't be misunderstanding here. This is a rejection. Peter is vehemently denying he knows Christ. There's a point later in this chapter where Peter actually swears an oath that he does not know Jesus. You cannot get any stronger in your denial of something than swearing an oath in that day. This would then match the the claims or, or the circumstances that some say results in us becoming lost again, losing our salvation through our denials of our faith in Jesus. So Peter gives us this test case, doesn't he? He gives us an opportunity to understand how does the Lord respond to someone who does that? So let's look at it. Let's look at how Jesus handles Peter's unfaithfulness. And it begins with Christ's statement in verse 32. Jesus says that after his disciples have rejected him, including Peter, after they've abandoned him, he'll meet them in Galilee. (laughs) Now, that doesn't sound like the Lord preparing to break off a relationship, does it? I mean, we remember even earlier in the Gospels, Jesus looked at Peter at one point and told Peter, you're gonna be my rock on which I build the church and you're gonna have the keys to the kingdom. I mean, it clearly seems as though Jesus has no intention of holding Peter's denials against him. And you know what? We find even more compelling evidence in one of the other Gospels. In Luke's rendition of this same moment in his account, We get a little more detail, and it's pretty interesting. If you want to go there with me now, it might be helpful if you have the text in front of you. It's in Luke chapter 22. And in Luke 22, verse 28, we're back to the same moment, but look at how Luke records it. Jesus says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, directly from that comment, look at what he says next. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. All right, Luke's writing about the same moment here, same scene as we're studying in Matthew 26. But do you notice how the conversation starts according to Luke? Jesus tells his disciples they are the ones who have stood by him in his trials and because of that faithfulness, they will have eternal rewards. Now remember, the same setting as Matthew 26. This is the same moment where Jesus also told them, you know, according to Zechariah, you're gonna scatter from me, you're gonna abandon me, you guys are all gonna leave me. So obviously, that momentary failure that Jesus said is coming is not indicative of their hearts overall. They're gonna run in fear, yeah, during an intense moment of persecution, but that doesn't mean that they lack faith in Jesus. Their experience here is merely an example of how the weakness of our flesh will at times cause us to live out our faith in an inconsistent fashion, even to the point of denying Christ. 
And Peter, among all these guys, is the poster child for unfaithfulness under those circumstances because he alone denies Christ three times publicly, and it's his situation we need to focus on for that reason. In verse 31, we're finding out why this happened. And I'm at Luke 22, verse 31 here. In verse 31, we discover Peter's denials of Jesus were not merely a personal failure or a personal weakness on his part. They were also the work of Satan. Jesus says Satan has demanded permission from God to sift Peter like flour. Sifting, I don't know if you do that very much anymore. Some people who bake know what I'm talking about, but sifting is a process of purifying the flour by removing impurities. And so what Satan is asking for is the opportunity to search for impurities in Peter's faith, in Peter's heart. He wants to disqualify Peter, and I think it's because he knew that Peter was the leader among these men, among the disciples. He had been given the keys to the kingdom, so Satan is thinking that he can bring threats of persecution against Peter sufficient to uh, crumble Peter's devotion to Jesus. And as he does that, as Peter falls, he expects the church to fall, because from what Satan understood, the, the church was resting on Peter. I mean, he was the rock, after all, as Christ had called him. Now, as you know, Satan is partially right here because Peter does fail this test. The pressure that Satan brings is enough to cause Peter to do the wrong thing and renounce Christ publicly. And not just once, but three different times that night. But Satan was also wrong because he was wrong in his assumption that the impact of Peter's faithlessness would, in the end, destroy the church. Peter's failure, as it turns out, did not put an end to the church, and that was Satan's miscalculation. His miscalculation was assuming that the church's existence rests on the faithfulness of Jesus' disciples. Listen to that again. The mistake Satan made was thinking that the success, the permanence, the opportunity of this church relies on our faithfulness, but it doesn't. And that's why God granted Satan the permission that he wanted to test Peter because God knew that Peter would fail the test and he wanted that example in scripture for Peter's sake, but I also think for our sake. Jesus wanted his church to learn something. He wanted you to learn from Peter's experience what happens when faithfulness falls short because despite your best intentions, my best intentions, we all depart from Jesus routinely in our actions and in our words. We say we love Jesus, We say we want to follow and we want to obey Jesus, but then you spend the rest of your life off and on doing exactly the opposite. You make promises, you make commitments, you make appointments, you make goals, you make resolutions, and then you break many of them, and so do I. And in times of stress, a Christian can even come to the point of denying they know Christ rather than face those consequences of faith. Look, that's the reality of sinful, weak flesh. You are weak, I am weak, we are prone to wandering, Scripture tells us. And so, if it were the case that believers can only have eternal life without fear of rejection from God based on our faithfulness to Christ, well, God help us, sincerely, because you cannot be faithful enough given the weaknesses of your flesh. And that is the primary error that Satan made, and it's the primary error that Peter made, and I would add, it is the primary error of those who believe salvation can be lost. It is not their assumption that salvation comes and goes. That too is wrong, and there is scripture 
to counter that. But their primary error is in assuming that a Christian is ever truly faithful to Jesus. The presumption that anyone could be faithful enough is folly. That's wrong. The only way that you believe that you are faithful enough to Jesus to retain or maintain your own salvation is if you don't understand how high the standard is. God's standard for faithfulness is the same as his standard for all behavior, perfection. Zero error, zero loss of faithfulness. Only perfection meets the the standard of God for holiness and righteousness, and that's why the Bible says we've all fallen short of that standard, of the glory of God. So thinking that you can be faithful enough to maintain this relationship that you have with Jesus is the same kind of arrogance and pride that stumbled Peter. Peter declared twice in the span of a couple hours to Jesus, I will never abandon you, only to deny him three times later that same night. And anyone who thinks that their own convictions hold them to Jesus is equally self-deceived. If our faithfulness to Jesus was the criteria for maintaining our salvation, we would all be in big trouble because we all routinely act contrary to our profession of faith. We all disobey. We all live in ways that are contrary to our confession. We all give in to worldly thought and worldly behavior. We all live in our flesh. And I'm telling you right now, if you were pushed hard enough, you would deny Christ. Now, at this point, maybe you're saying, no, Steve, I, I know that's what Peter did, but I know myself. I'd never deny Christ. Look, if that's you, please allow me to direct you back to Peter's example. The rock of the early church the man who walked with Jesus in person for three years. That man rejected Jesus mere hours after telling him definitively he would never do it. The Lord permitted Satan to intimidate Peter and to frighten Peter with threats of persecution, and when it came, Peter folded like a kite. The fact that Satan's plan worked so well is evidenced in the fact that Peter denied him three times. Do you honestly think you're stronger than Peter? Do you think you're better than the apostles? Are you thinking that you could go into that same situation and come out differently than Peter did? Look, if you're feeling secure in your relationship with Christ simply because you've never publicly denied Christ, that just means Satan hasn't asked to sift you yet, and God forbid he ever does. The fact that Jesus told Satan yes is our evidence to know that holding on to salvation by our own faithfulness is not what Christ is expecting. And I would say to anyone who thinks they're doing that, good luck with that, friend, because you can't be faithful enough. And in the day when Satan makes you a target, you'll find out, I'm afraid, how weak flesh can be. But I will also tell you what you'll experience in that moment. If that moment ever comes, you will also find out how thankful you are that your salvation doesn't rest on your faithfulness to Jesus, but it rests on Christ's faithfulness to you. The Bible says your salvation came by grace of God, through a faith that is not of your own, it is a gift of God. You did not obtain salvation by your own strength, and you aren't holding on to it by your own power. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Paul says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, which means you didn't even come to Jesus on your own. He brought faith to you. 
And at that moment, he became your righteousness, Paul says, speaking about your justification. But Jesus' work didn't stop there. Paul says, Christ also becomes your sanctification and your redemption ultimately. He does it all. He finishes the spiritual work that he began in you so that all who are saved ultimately can come to glory boasting in what Christ did for us, not the other way around. And Peter's example is proof to you that your faith and your salvation does not rest on your faithfulness but only on Christ's faithfulness to you. And I should add, to his own word, by the way, I remember in Peter's case, you know, he promised Peter he'd have the keys to the kingdom and that Peter would lead the church and that he would be, in fact, he said, I'll promise to meet you again in the Galilee. You know, he promised Peter, after a while, you'll join me in heaven. These are all things that came out of the, the mouth of Jesus. They're all the word of God, literally. And there is no power in the universe greater than the word of God. So even when you and I disobey Jesus, which we do a lot, or disregard his instructions, which we also do, or perhaps walk away from him, like a rebellious child running away from home, the Bible says the Lord remains faithful to what he promised you. And you might say, well, how can a righteous God remain so faithful to faithless people? And the answer is, because Jesus died to forgive that faithlessness. Take another look at the passage we're studying here in Luke 22 again. Look in verse 32 again of Luke 22. You notice Jesus tells Peter that he prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail during this test. Now that's an interesting comment when you think about it because you know Peter did deny Jesus. But now here's Jesus saying, no, your, your faith won't fail. I'm prayed for that, which is this way of saying, I've ensured that this will be the outcome. Your faith will not fail. So how do we reconcile that? He denied Jesus, which from our standpoint looks like his faith failed, but Jesus said, no, in that moment, your faith will not fail. I am behind you. I am supporting you. What it tells us is this. Peter's denial of Christ three times does not mean that his faith was gone. In fact, even as he's making those denials, Jesus is working in Peter's heart to maintain his faith. His faith, in other words, was being preserved by the power of God, not by Peter's own strength. And his behavior was not indicative of his heart. You know, just as some who lack faith can act in charitable ways, can seem to be loving and godly to strangers or others by what they do or what they say. That is not indicative of the love of God in their heart. It is something motivated by other desires of their own. And the reverse is true for a Christian. Just because you have the love of God in your heart and you know Jesus does not mean that every action you will take on is indicative of the love of God. That's what's called sin. So even as Peter's actions demonstrated faithlessness, Peter could take comfort knowing Jesus told him that he will remain in covenant with the living God because Jesus is taking care of that problem for him. And that's why he added, if you notice at the end of verse 32, he says, and when you've turned again, Peter, strengthen your brothers. The key words here are when and again. Jesus says, when Peter turns, not if Peter turns, because he knew Peter was gonna turn because Jesus was going to turn him. And Jesus said, turn again, because Peter's first turn would not be his last one. In the end, Peter would come back, because in spiritual terms, he never left. That's why Jesus said, when this happens, I want you to strengthen your brothers. And here's what I think he means. He means, your example, Peter, 
of failure and restoration is going to become a source of reassurance to your brothers, in fact, to the whole church, even to us now. When you fall short in your faithfulness to Jesus, you just have to remember Peter. Thank God for Peter. Peter fell first. And look, if you've ever wondered after some bad episode in your life, after some bad season, perhaps, in your life, if you've ever wondered, is Jesus gonna take me back after what I've done? After what I've said, how far I've run away from him? Look, you just need to remember, he was telling Peter about his restoration even before he fell. And maybe you think, well, yeah, but I've done worse things than Peter. I've done things I don't think Jesus would ever look over and forgive. And you may have even gone to the point of satanic worship, something that is not only a failure to follow Jesus, but is the antithesis of following Jesus. Maybe that's your story. Here again, friend, remember Peter, because you could do no worse than Peter. Honestly, swearing a public oath to not know Jesus is as far from a confession of faith as you can go. Literally speaking, there's no further possible. And yet, Jesus never rejected Peter. And he said, you'll turn again. And he says, I'll see you in Galilee. And he says, you'll be with me in heaven. And he says, strengthen your brothers. He was looking past that as if it never happened. You know, later in his life, a mature Peter wrote a letter to the church, his first letter, we call it First Peter. And in the beginning of that letter, he reflects back on his own experience here, I think, in giving us wise counsel. Listen to what Peter writes. First Peter 1 Chapter one, verse three, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade and is reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected, listen to this, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. In this salvation that you have, you rejoice greatly, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Man, I just hear in those words a Peter who thought back to what he experienced and saw how God used it in his life and marveled at the power of God to preserve his faith. He describes our salvation here as an act of God's mercy in which he caused us to be born again, a living hope we have now in the resurrection of Christ, and he says that hope knows that we will obtain an eternal inheritance reserved for us in heaven that cannot be taken away, And then he says, that eternal future is, I love this, protected by the power of God through faith. You know, what he didn't say was protected by the power of your faith in God. No, it's protected by God through a faith that he gave you. Which is why Peter goes on to say that you can rejoice greatly, even as you may be distressed from time to time with various trials. Because he says those trials ultimately only serve one purpose, to prove that you have an imperishable inheritance, to prove that you have a faith protected by God. So that when things come against you that under any other circumstance should have resulted in hopelessness, the abandonment of Jesus and all that you know, etc. When it doesn't turn out that way, it's just more proof you're being preserved by God. You're being protected. And as you reflect on Peter's whole experience, you should come to realize that his actions 
did not nullify the faith that God puts in his heart. Uh, Quite the contrary, his actions demonstrate the power of his faith because if a man can do what Peter did under those circumstances, there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. And neither will anything we say or do result in that. Peter says in a day to come, Christ's faithfulness to us will be so evident, we'll all be up there with him, praising him for the fact that he has held us to himself. That's why Paul tells us in Romans, that there is no reason for any Christian to ever fear anything in this life separating us from the love of God because our eternity is set. Verses you've probably heard, but I'll read them. Verse 33 of Romans 8, Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who's the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Here's what Paul is asking. He's asking rhetorically, how can a Christian be condemned by Jesus if Jesus is the one interceding for us? He's saying that no matter how faithless you are, you have a faithful advocate who is securing forgiveness for you for that unfaithfulness at all times. And so just as he interceded for Peter when he says, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail, that's intercession, that's an example of what he's doing for you every minute of the day. And because of that intercession, Peter was restored. So Paul asks, knowing that that's how it works, could you name a worldly pressure, a worldly circumstance that could ever come against you sufficient to separate you from Christ? Now he's not saying those things won't result in a denial of Christ, they did in Peter's case, they might in our case. That's not the question. The question is, what comes out of that? And if Satan could bring full force against persecu- of, of persecution against Peter, leading Peter to deny Christ, and yet it made no difference in his relationship with Jesus, what could possibly put anything between you and Jesus? I mean, if you were subject to famine, or peril, or the threat of death. Yes, it might be enough to cause you to stop living your faith. It might cause you to be so scared you never left your house. It might cause you to be so scared that you denied you knew Jesus. You might cast the whole Christian thing out the window because you'd rather live than live for Christ. And there are times in people's lives when they make that poor choice. It's called faithlessness. It's what Peter did. It can happen to any of us. But what Paul's saying is, do any of those things stop Jesus from interceding? Do any of those things get in the way of what Jesus is doing for us faithfully at the right hand of the Father? Every time we do the wrong thing, whatever it is, he intercedes and obtains forgiveness by his blood. So when you fail Jesus, and we do all the time, he comes through for us because he is faithful. In fact, Jesus' protection of his sheep is so complete that, did you notice, Satan has to ask permission to sift us. He can't do it without Jesus's go-ahead, which means even if the testing comes in some form, then you know that it's come for some good purpose in the economy of God. And if it results in us failing because of what we face, Jesus is prepared to stand by us. And even if you renounce Christ, Jesus forgives that offense too. So look, if you are out there today believing, for one reason or another, that salvation can be lost, that someone could repudiate Christ, they could walk away from their salvation. Look, friends, Peter's story was written for you. And I believe that's why we studied it today, that God wanted you to know, Jesus wanted you to know that he allowed Satan to sift Peter for a purpose, and that purpose was 
so that you would understand better what you have in Christ, so that you could see conclusive evidence of the faithfulness of God, even in the face of our own unfaithfulness. You didn't earn Christ's mercy in the beginning. You didn't impress him by your confession of faith such that he felt compelled to come down from heaven and give you salvation. The Bible says he saved you as an act of his own mercy by his grace and without regard to anything of yourself. And in fact, the Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins even as you were being saved. So clearly Jesus saves faithless people because that's where you started. And Peter's account is your assurance that your hope is resting in Jesus, not in yourself. And there's one verse of Paul's writing that I think sums this up so clearly. It's the only verse you really need on this topic. Paul says that our relationship to Jesus goes this way in 2 Timothy 2.13. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. If Jesus were faithless to us, Paul says it would be him denying himself because he means Jesus would be denying his own word. He'd be going back on his own promises and that is not something God can do. Rejoice in the salvation that you have made sure by the faithfulness of God who keeps his promises and give not another thought, waste not another day worrying about something that the Bible says you have nothing to worry about. And I can't think of a better way to end this lesson than to read from 1 Peter again. I read you passage from the beginning of his letter. Let me read to you how he ends that letter. 1 Peter 5.10. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, we praise your name and your faithfulness to us, and we thank you, dear Lord, for your salvation given to us by your grace alone. We are forever in awe of a faithful God to a faithless people. We are so thankful, Father, that our salvation rests in Christ's work and not our own. What a joy it is to live every day, Father, with the assurance of where we will be and knowing that even if the worst should come and Satan should find a way to drive us away from you, you will never be away from us. And Lord, we glory in that and we celebrate that and we glorify your name for that. Father, give assurance to any who has heard this message, any who have struggled with the fear of losing something they could not lose. And give them, Father, the assurance that you have never left them. For those, Father, who have made a confession of faith but then walked away and the pressures of life or the sin of this world has drawn them to a different place and they have put you in the background and forgotten you, Father, I pray this message would cause them to pause and think again about the God that has stayed by them even as they have left you and that they are ready, may be ready to return to you for you are waiting for them so that they might live out the rest of their days, Father, in the relationship that you established. We pray, Father, for these outcomes, these miracles in our lives that you make possible by your grace and I pray, Father, that as you do these things, your glory will be magnified for that is what you richly deserve, Father, for all the work you have done for us. We pray these things, Father, in thankful hearts and in Jesus' name, amen.